0: Well good morning it is uh good to be here we've um known pastor Ballard for for many years he um, in fact when uh, we were he used to be uh on staff at our home church the church I, I grew up in and um and uh, many years ago in Oregon and so um we met some of you uh, a few of you of uh, several months ago when we were here and um it's uh, It was a pleasure when Pastor Bowler asked us to help him out a little bit. It was uh, certainly our pleasure uh, to be able to, to do that. Uh, we have some friends who are missionaries uh, to Alaska that, uh, as, uh, from what I understand, were here uh, or have been here recently, the house. Uh, they live next to us there at Shepherd's Bethel, and so um, they hopefully have been a blessing to you all as well, so... We are this morning looking at um, the topic of seeking the lost. Uh, Jesus Christ, in, as we read already in Matthew chapter 9, He looked on the people as, uh, as sheep having no shepherd. He, he had compassion on them because He viewed them as sheep having no shepherd. You know, when you walk around, you go to the store or... Uh, wherever you go, the places you go, do you look around at the people? Uh, I, I remember when I was a kid, uh, my mom was not, uh, I guess, maybe one of those big shoppers. But uh, I remember, I guess back in the 80s, the um, the shopping mall sort of thing was still, I, I, I don't know, maybe in the big cities it's still a thing, but uh, it's not really too much in America anymore. But back in the 80s, the shopping mall was kind of where things were you know you'd go to the mall to get things and i remember my dad was not really into it and so uh, i remember we would go to the mall i had two sisters and we would go to the mall and we my dad and i would sit on one of the benches and just watch people and uh my dad would say here just sit down be quiet for a minute watch you'll you'll see some stuff um and i don't know if you've ever done that you just watch people if you ever watch people it's uh it's pretty fascinating you don't have to say anything you can just watch as people do things, and sometimes you're like, "Wow, did you just do that?" I mean, it's it's surprising. But you ever have you ever stopped and looked at them and thought, "Man, these people are going. Where are they going? Where are they going to? Where are they coming from? What is physically? What is their what is their purpose today? Are they just come here to get a pair of shoes? Or um, to be honest, as a teenager, you kind of just go to hang out, you know, or at least that's what we did, but. Um, but uh, what is what is their purpose today? What is what is my purpose today? What is, uh, physically, but then spiritually, where am I going? Where are they going? Do they have any clue where they're going? Have they ever even thought about it? And that's what Jesus was saying. I don't think that he was realizing that they were uh, lost in their own perspective. I guess you might say. I don't think that those people necessarily stopped. If you'd have asked those people there that Jesus was looking at and had compassion on, I don't think if you'd have asked them if they would have said, oh yeah, I'm lost. I don't think they would have said that. In fact, um, if you were to watch those people at the mall and a guy sees you maybe watching, and so he comes and sits down next to you and he says, what are you looking for? And you said, well, I'm, I'm just kind of looking to see if, maybe there's someone who's lost. And he would say, I mean, they probably know where they're at, right? We have GPS nowadays. Pretty, You know where you're at. And, uh, and you know you're in the mall. Not too many people would view themselves as lost, but spiritually not connected with the God who made them, right? And that's what we talk about when we use that term lost. Uh, often uh, an unsafe person might not understand that question. If you just walked up to someone in the mall and said, hey, are you lost? They would say, no, I know exactly where I'm at. I know where I'm going, I know where I just came from, and I'm, I know where I'm headed back to. But spiritually, they are lost. They don't, they don't understand the relationship that they have with the God who made them. And so Jesus spent his life, we see, seeking those who were lost. The story is told of a uh, barber who was um, invited to church and eventually... Came to church one day and someone shared the gospel with him. He got saved, and uh, he went home that that night. And then um, the next day, he's going to go back to his barber shop, and he's trying to figure out a way that he could share his faith now with uh, someone else. And so he's he's in his barber shop, and a man walks in, and he says, "Can I get a shave?" And so uh, the man sits down in the chair, and the barber. Uh, begins to get his tools together and he's just trying to think what can I say how can I say it to share the gospel with this guy and uh, by the time he finally gets his uh, his his thoughts together he's got uh, the razor in his hand and he's got it poised over the man's throat and he says are you prepared to meet God? there's There's ways that we can share the gospel in our everyday life, right? And that's what God is asking us to do. In fact, if you look at the the concept of the Great Commission, the Great Commission is not sending missionaries around the world. I'm not saying that that's not a good thing. That's what we ought to be doing. But the Great Commission is us sharing the gospel with those around us. And and, and that... by extension, the missionary program comes from that, in that we can't be everywhere in the world. And so if I'm not everywhere in the world, I want to have a, 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 an effect on those who I'm not around. And that person can do so for me, right? And so there are people in all parts of the world uh, sharing the gospel with people. And, and, and we, in our, in our church, in our home church, have, have a missions program by which we help support those folks doing that work. But, it, but in, in, in the end, the root of the missions program really is me sharing the gospel with those around me. And you say, well, I don't really know how to share the gospel with those around me. You know what? It's funny. Um, Jesus Christ, he said, be witnesses of me. You know what that, that really means? That all that's meaning is share what he's done for you. Right, share your story. That's literally what it Uh, is—a witness of a car accident, or a witness of a murder, or a witness of some other crime. They're going to sit on the witness stand, or they're going to—they're going to talk to whoever it is, an officer or something like that—and they're going to share their story. They're going to share what they saw. They're not going to go. They're not expected to know the law. They're not expected to go pull out the. The revised statutes of this county and, and, and tell them exactly what happened in, in, in statutory terms. The police officer or the lawyer or the judge can figure that part out. What they're trying to say is what did you physically see? Right? And it's not to say that that's an exact correlation to what we do as a Christian. But the, but the fact is this. God is not expecting us to be experts. He's not all expecting us to have gone to Bible college and know exactly how to, to, to develop a sermon and, and all that. That's not what He's expecting. But what He is expecting is for each of us to share what we've seen, what God has done in my life. And I can tell you what, I am convinced that that is the most effective message. I, I am. I, I. think God. Paul made it very clear. God has used the foolishness of preaching. Right. The the weakness that it is of a human standing up in a pulpit. And 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 can you keep in mind that word preaching is not necessarily meaning only someone in a pulpit in a, you know on on a stage someplace. It's referring to the sharing of the gospel. Right. Uh, but God has used that. That witness. That this is what God has done for me, and this is what he, what God says about. Uh, about uh, us as humans right so here and if you would look with me in Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be this morning Luke chapter 15 and I really want to look there's three parables here that Jesus Christ gives very familiar Um, this will not be new stuff to you I'm certain Uh, I I, hopefully just a reminder and encouragement Uh, and uh, it was a very good Sunday school lesson this morning I I really appreciated it in fact it, it you touched a little bit on, on some of what we'll talk about this morning, and so uh, the Lord just does that uh, in His own way. And, uh, and what I really want to look at is, is this, this idea here that Christ gives us uh, of, of His... Basically, He's giving the Pharisees His response to seeking the lost. So here in Luke chapter 15, it says, "...then drew near unto Him all the publicans and sinners for to hear Him." And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners, and eateth with them. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we have Your Word, that we can, we can read it, we can understand it, we can, uh, we can share it with others, that they might understand it as well. Lord, I pray that You'd help us to find a way individually to be the witness that You've called each one of us to be. You've, you've given each one of us a different ministry in our lives. And you have a purpose for each one of us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand what that is. And, and Lord, that we, you would help us to uh, fulfill the ministry, the, uh, be obedient and faithful to your calling in each one of our lives. I pray that you'd be honored and glorified today in our service. And I pray all these things in your name. Amen. I want to start with a couple of things here. We're going to get into the three parables. But, but before we do, I, think it's, I really think it's very important that uh, we understand the, the context of a passage. So in other words, uh, I think often we read the parables, we remember the parables, but we don't often necessarily remember the circumstance of the parable. So in other words, I, I believe it is very important that, that Jesus Christ did not bring everybody around him and say, okay, everybody sit down, I'm going to tell you some parables. These parables were responses to to problems or or questions or things that happened to him. If you study out parables, there's very few, uh, none that I'm aware of, uh, but certainly uh, very few that, that that Christ would have just given his own mindset on necessarily without it being a response. He was what he was trying to do is it's it's a, um, it's a a way of. Of putting a Bible truth, a gospel truth, a God you know God given the truth about uh, the world into uh, something that we can understand today, and something in my life. So, in other words, he gave them parables that that, that were with, that fit within the context of the world they lived in. So, in other words, um, he gives them three parables that they would uh, that that they would understand. He he puts the Bible or the gospel, his ministry into uh, a concept that they would understand. So. Here we start with a couple of things, though I want to I highlight. First of all, we see this um, this, uh, this term "publicans." The term "publicans" is a term that's uh, used. I think hopefully most everybody understands what that is. That's just a tax collector. But the way the Roman government had done this was very different than than any other uh, of the other countries that had that were in the situation that they had been in. So, in other words, Assyria. We had Assyria, we had Babylon, we had the Medes and Persians all uh, took over a huge portion or, or, or the vast majority of the known world at the time. The Greeks followed that and then eventually the Romans. So all of these countries, I mean this was a time, this was several hundred years of just conquest. Everybody's taking over the entire known world. That's what's happening. So, like I said, we started with the Assyrians. There was modern-day northern Iraq, and then uh, and then the Babylonians took over them and the rest of the world, which is now modern-day southern Iraq, Babylon. Um, and then uh, and then beyond them, uh, uh, to the farther to the east toward India is Iran and uh, and the Persians. Uh, then and the Medes had combined already, and then they took over what was Babylon and Assyria and the whole known world at the time. Right, Nebuchadnezzar. And then uh, from uh, across the Mediterranean, the Greeks come across. Alexander the Great didn't even live very long. I think he was 30 or 33 maybe years old at his, at his, at his death. Uh, but in his time, takes over all of that part of the known world. And then uh, the Romans from Italy, further beyond Greece there, had come and done the same exact thing. So now, here in Jesus' time, we have all, of, the Romans have, have conquered the known world. In fact, the Romans had gone so far as to even go the other direction, and had gone and taken over Spain, and, and, and eventually up into Britain, and, um, and, and, and the, and the a lot of the, what's now northern Europe had taken much of that as well. So the, the, the Romans had really expanded the known world, I guess you might say, at the time. And one of the things that they had done is that just like all these other nations that had conquered these places... They had put them to a tribute. If you re- read in the Old Testament, and you can see this historically, is very very common. They would put these countries to a tribute, and typically what they would do, and, and this is what they did in Israel. They uh, Nebuchadnezzar, if you if you remember, he established a uh, he, he he basically put his own king uh, in place of the current king, right, in, 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 uh, in the, the sons of Josiah, he ends up replacing the, the one that had taken over with another one of his sons, um, in fact his grandson had taken over and now he's replacing it with his, his uncle, um, but he put his own guy in there essentially, and then he required that tribute from that king, right, so that's what he did, you pay me this money every so often, whatever it is, annually or something like that, and maybe it's goods, whatever it is. Uh, and he expected this tribute money. It's a tax, right? And it's sort of their way of keep making sure that you realize you, I own you, right? Is what you do. Uh, well, the Romans had done something different. In this case, they, what they had done is they had, they had uh, instead of putting a king there, they didn't want that, they, the Romans really desperately wanted all of the world to be under the Roman rule, but they wanted them to all be, consider themselves part of this Roman Empire. And so in order to do that, they didn't want kings all over the place. What they wanted was they wanted, uh, they wanted tax collectors that would just draw this directly from the people. So in other words, what they would do, and it sounds historically like they did this in other nations just besides Israel, is they would hire people from that nation to go and collect the taxes. And in Jesus' time, what this, the way this worked out, we remember Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus, we remember the story of Levi or Matthew. The, both of these are tax collectors. They're sitting at the receipt of custom. When Jesus comes to Matthew, to Levi, he, he sees him and he, he is sitting at the receipt of custom, it says. He's, he's, he's collecting the taxes, right? And what he's done is he's he basically set up a table by w- at which he, people would pass him and he would collect their taxes. So in other words, uh, put it in modern day uh, context, if this is how they collected taxes in the United States, if uh, when you went to... The store, the grocery store, out in front of the grocery store. Instead of the Girl Scout cookies table, it would be the tax collector's table, right? So the the the, uh, the in, instead of uh, instead of somebody out there trying to convince you to buy something from them, they're looking for you to walk by so that they can grab you and collect their taxes. And. So what these guys would do is in the city gate commonly was very commonplace. Uh, there was an open space, and that's where a lot of times where um, they would do business. They would, uh, they would sell buy and sell goods there in the city gate. Uh, the, the leaders of the city would, would find themselves meeting there in the city gate. And so the, the tax collector often would find themselves near that city gate. That's where people were coming and going, and they would ke- catch them. Uh, sometimes uh, from historically speaking, Josephus talks about it and some others, that uh, that often they would sit near uh, uh, one of the synagogues or, or the temple near near there because especially on Sabbath day people were coming and going and these tax collectors weren't necessarily all that concerned about going to the temple on Saturday and so they would sit near there and that's where they knew they could catch just about everybody, at least all the good Jews, right? And so that, that's what this person was this is a, this is a publican right the other term there's is used is sinners it says it, it says that, uh, they drew near to the publicans and the sinners that term sinners is actually uh, used elsewhere to refer to Mary Magdalene who had a devil that Jesus Christ removed from her and um, and and it's used in other places as well very it seems like a very broad term it's not super specific. Uh, I would say in modern day context it's those who don't view themselves as Christian, maybe an atheist or someone who just doesn't believe in God. Um, This term is just a general term. Uh, Maybe someone who would would be a harlot or someone who would... um, just a general term, sinners, right? So here, here we have Jesus spending time with publicans and sinners and eating with them. We know with that Zacchaeus, that's what he did. He tells Zacchaeus, "I'm coming to your house today." Um, Peter, Peter was a fisherman. Jesus, we know Jesus came and went from his house multiple times. Um, he was not considered the learned guy. He was just the you know average, just a fisherman, you know, um, and so. Here's Jesus spending time, and it says in verse 2 that the Pharisees and the scribes murmured. Well, what are the Pharisees and the scribes? Uh, the scribes are, are, were, the, were, the, were the men who are typically Levites, almost always Levites, but their job was to keep the, the, the Word of God current. So in other words, um, they didn't have copy machines, they couldn't print, they didn't have printing presses to print a Bible, um, so they would take all the law that God had given, and that, their job was to write that out. Because their paper and their ink was terrible, and it would not last long. And the, and the goal was that they could—they would never want to have a generation that did not have the word of God. So they would always be writing it out, more copies, so that there would always be copies. Every synagogue would have one, at least one copy, um, and every—you te- know—the temple, of course, would have have a copy that that. That There would never be a generation that went without the Word of God. So their job was to write down the Word of God all the time. They would constantly be copying it out. And the Pharisees was a group of these scribes, right? They had come to the point with the Sadducees where the Pharisees and the Sadducees together essentially ruled uh, this uh, the nation of Israel at the time underneath the rule of, of the Roman Empire. So these two groups, the Sadducees would have been the very... I guess more theologically liberal. They didn't even believe in the resurrection. Uh, They believed once you died, you just went into the ground and that was it. So they they were not they were not um, they were Jewish, but they they certainly not Jewish biblically speaking. They did not believe uh, the same way that the Pharisees did. The Pharisees were the scribes, and so they were very very accurate in everything they did to the scriptures as much as they could be. Jesus actually came after the Pharisees quite a bit. And you say, well, that's odd because they're not even the ones that had gone off so far to the, to, to the one side. But what they've done is they've become so legalistic that it was just about, it was about the Word and it wasn't about the God of the Word, right? And so he, he comes after them. So this is who the Pharisees and the scribes are. And here they are. They're seeing Jesus spending time with these terrible people, these people who aren't in church on Sunday in modern terms, I guess you might say. And they say, "How dare you?" And to the point of going to his house, to their house, and eating with them. And so here, here Jesus then responds with these three parables. The first one, it says in verse number four, "What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it?" And it's, it's a very, this is a very fascinating. Concept. So, so Jesus Christ knew that the Jews knew sheep, right? This was not. Um, this was not. Here, let me. Let me. The Pharisees and the, and the scribes were very common, uh, uh, very known for kind of speaking over people's heads. In other words, uh, I will. I will stand up in the synagogue and read the word of God. Is what they did. They would read from the, from the book of the law. And then uh, in Ezra, or we, see, we see Nehemiah it tells us that Ezra read the word of God. And then the Levites, it says, and it gives us names of those, those, these men, would give the meaning of it or the sense of it. They would, they would help pe- the people to understand what God was saying with this word, right? So really, to be honest, this is what I, I believe... Firmly, that this is this is exactly what a pastor or a preacher of any kind should be doing. This is our job, right? We are we we, we, we take the word of God. We we it requires um, a study in our, on our own to make sure that we know what it says. And then we then apply the, that to modern day life uh, because this, this book is, is absolutely still applicable today to everything we do. We just struggle sometimes to figure out how to, how to apply it. And so that's our job. And that's the job of, of, a, of, a, of a preacher, a Sunday school teacher, anybody. Is our job is to take the word of God, read a passage, and then apply that. And that's what these people would do. And yet sometimes I think they, uh, you know, the Catholic Church was you known. We talked a little bit this morning about Martin Luther, the Catholic Church has known, been known over the years to, um, to be very resistant to anyone having the Scriptures in their own hands. Now, I know that that's not necessarily current today. Um, not that I speak from experience. I don't really know much about the Catholic Church other than what I've heard. But from, from what I understand, I mean, you could read stories. I mean, William Tyndale was executed. He was burned at the stake. For, for copying the Bible in modern vernacular <laughs> so that people could read it themselves. I mean, that, it's not acceptable for someone to have the Word of God in their, in, their, in their own language and so that they could read it themselves. And to be honest, the current day uh, Amish are very, very much the same way. You're not allowed to have the Word of God yourself. You, you're not allowed to read it. But we know some who have come out of it in past years and... Um, they got kicked out because they got the Word of God and started reading it themselves. And we're talking about adults here. We're not talking about kids. Adults were removed from their property because the Amish community didn't like them having the Word of God. This, this is unacceptable. This is, this is not how it's supposed to be. It was supposed to be for all generations that all people could, could read it. But these Pharisees had gotten to this point. They would stand up there in the middle of the synagogue on, on, on a Saturday, and they would share this, this law, and then they would say, this is what it means. And you've got to trust me that this is what it means because you can't even read it. That's terrible. That's not how it should be. That's not what God intended. And they would, they would kind of hold this over people's heads. And Jesus is saying, wait a second, the end result is that these are like your sheep. And if you had a hundred of them and one of them was gone, in, in, in this context, if, if you had a hundred Jews in your synagogue and one of them went missing, and, and I say missing, I mean they left because they didn't understand or they, they they didn't want to understand or whatever the reason, what he's saying is, do you not go after that sheep? Or do you say, fine, get out, don't ever come back. And that's literally what they had done. They were not interested in having those publicans or those sinners coming into their, into their synagogue. They were not interested. Now, those public, you could say those people, those, those people were wicked, and, and, and maybe they were, uh, and they weren't interested in coming either. Okay, that's great, but if they ever were interested, you certainly weren't going to want them in. And by the way, he's reminding them, it's your job to go find them. You know that sheep that wandered away? It didn't want to come back. (laughs) He's not telling you, only go look for the ones that want to come back, right? That's not what he said. He's saying, a sheep wandered away, it's your job to go get them, because you're the shepherd and you know better than the sheep, right? In other words, he's telling the Pharisees, one sheep was lost. Aren't you going to spend every effort to go find that sheep? I'll put it in this context. I know this is not the context that Jesus gives, but what would happen if you had... uh, We have have five kids. Our youngest is five. But what would happen if I was in the store and I realized that uh, as I'm going down the aisles, my youngest son's missing? You think through the process, right? You just, well, okay, I'm going to look in a few aisles first. I'm going to see if I can find them. Uh, I'm going to look and look and look. If I can't find them, I'm probably going to go up to the desk and say, hey, can you just say something over the speaker or whatever. At what point do you decide you're no longer going to look for that child? And I would say a normal human being never stops looking, right? Right? Until you find them. That's what you do. And that's what Jesus Christ is saying. You stopped looking for them. How, you're the, you're the terrible one. You're trying to say that I'm terrible because I am going and spending time with them, but you stopped looking for them. You didn't care about them anymore. It's like your child that you decided, I'm just going to adopt now because I can't find them. That's terrible. A, a normal human parent would not do that. Right? And so he's saying, We would not do that. We would keep looking until we found them. The story is told by D.L. Moody. He tells his own conversion. He says this, he says, When I was in Boston, I used to attend a Sunday school class, and one day I recollect my teacher came around behind the counter of the shop I was at work in, and he put his hand on my shoulder and talked to me about Christ and my soul. I had not felt that I had a soul till then, I said to myself, this is a very strange thing. Here is a man who never saw me till lately, and he is weeping over my sins, and I never shed a tear about them. But I understand it now, and I know what it is to have a passion for men's souls and to weep over their sins. I don't remember what he said, but I can still feel the power of that man's hand on my shoulder tonight. In other words, many, many years later, D.L. Moody was saying that I still understand what that man did for me in caring for my soul in a way that I didn't even understand that I had one. I did not understand that I had an eternal future and it was going to be either in, in hell or in heaven, one of the two. And I had to make a decision. And without making a decision, I'm already on my way toward hell. I need to make a decision to change that. And I didn't even know my, that soul existed. And here's a man standing here weeping over my sins and I didn't even care. Because I didn't even know about them. And you might say, well, people know when they're bad. Okay. But they don't know the consequence of it. And there are many people out there who don't believe in the consequence of of our sin, right? And that's that's understandable. The world has just buried us (laughs) with garbage that is completely untrue. The truth is the truth. It, it doesn't ever change. That's the beauty of God. God is unchangeable. The truth has always been the case. It can never be different than what he's already said it to be. And so the fact is, we can share. Look, I, I can tell you, these people are not looking out for you. <laughs> the Bible tells us that this is the truth. And, and, and they just need someone to share that with them. And as we talked about with Ezekiel this morning, sometimes they're just not going to listen. They're not going to care. They're going to debate with you. They're going to get into an argument with you. And, and you're going to feel terrible now because they're going, to, they're going to try to make you feel like a, like they used, back in the 90s, they used this term bigoted. I don't know if they still use that anymore, but they used to use all these terms like, oh, they turn you into a terrible person. And the reality is, I'm not a terrible person. If This is an analogy that some people have used. If someone is standing in front of you, with their back to a cliff and you remind them hey by the way one step backwards it's a cliff (laughs) you've fallen off and they say how dare you speak to me that way okay fine whatever walk off the cliff i mean the point is don't i have a responsibility at least let you know by the way you're standing up against a cliff and i'm not the terrible person and yet they make us feel that way. And as Christians, we succumb to that. We say, "Oh yeah, I, you're right. I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be sharing this." Are you kidding me? They're the ones that will be the fools one day. They're the ones that will be burning in hell because they decided to reject God. They're not rejecting me. They don't. They don't even know me. They're rejecting God. That's what they're rejecting. And and, and I still have a responsibility to at least let them know. And in the end, as you know, as Ezekiel, God told Ezekiel, "You're the watchman." It's your job. You've got to tell them. That's our job. Jesus goes on. He gives us another parable. In verse number 8, he says, Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. In this case, um, most commentators and in, uh, in, uh, historians said that it's not super clear, but this, this concept that he's referring to, Jesus is referring to, at this time in Jewish tradition, it would seem that what was happening was a, a, a father, when he would give a, 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 his daughter away to be married, he would give her a headpiece. This headpiece would typically have ten pieces of silver around it. She wouldn't necessarily wear it. There's no, uh, his, in history, we don't know of any, situations where they necessarily wore it, but the, it, the headpiece was really more symbolic than anything, and it, it represented um, life in, in the end. Okay, so here's what would happen. Very often, women were significantly younger than men at that time, uh, than, their, than their husbands, uh, and often it was also very common for men to divorce with very little reason. And so in either situation, a woman could find herself a widow or divorced, and in that and in that. Time, she would have zero ability to, to find money or food, which is the end result, is what she was looking for. Uh, she couldn't go get a job. That was not how it worked. It was not that simple. And so often she would be found, uh, according to most commentators, it seems that she would be found uh, similar to blind Bartimaeus or the lame man on the side of the road, basically with a basket hoping someone would drop a coin in there so she could go buy food. And so, in this situation, it would be pretty desperate. And so, if, she, if her father gave her this headpiece, not knowing what her future is, we don't know if she's widowed yet, but in this, this concept, if this was the case, and she realizes that one of these pieces is missing, that represents some period of time where she's able to live. And so, it's life, physical life. And so, it, it was absolutely desperate when you find out that you're missing some. I'll put it in the more of a current context. Say you worked at a job. It was very common, uh, probably before my uh, generation, it was very common to see people work 30 or 40 or maybe even 50 years in a job, in the same job. Um, very uncommon I think nowadays. But uh, but can you imagine working 40 years for a job? You've got, you get some sort of a pension, uh, you have social security, whatever, all of this combined. But you come to a point where you realize, for whatever reason, the bank lost all your money. Or back in 2008, again in 2020, it sounded like uh, a lot of people had this, uh, like a 401k or an IRA that they built for many, many years, and you know, timing is everything. If they had intended to retire shortly after those two crashes, uh, I guess they're not called crashes, whatever they're called, uh, uh, they, then their money was significantly less than it was. Some, I think some in 2008-2009 saw, saw, saw some of their money go to a third of what it was uh, in some of these retirement plans, depending on what it was. And if you were in, in, in a short range getting ready to retire, that would be a desperate situation. I, I'm now going to retire. I'm not putting any more in. And I have, the bank says, eight years to live on that. <laughs> well, I mean, you ret- even if you waited until you were 70... I mean, many people live past 78 years old. That's not that old. I mean, you don't want to get to 78 years old and realize you've got no money. <laughs> well, I guess I can't live anymore because I'm out of money. So the idea is that you, you want to plan so that you have something to live on for whatever time that is that God gives you. And so if you're in a situation where it's so, a huge portion of it's gone, you're going to look for it. Now you say, well, it was only, that was only one of the 10 coins. I, yeah, I get it. But even 10%. That's a lot. I mean, if a bank lost 10% of your money, don't you think you would go looking for it? I, I think we probably would. Uh, I, I had a um, someone at a church one time handed me a $100 bill, and I stuck it in my pocket, and um, just wasn't thinking about it. I actually didn't even know what it was at the time, but uh, uh, stuck it in my pocket, and then we went to leave. Later on, I reached in my pocket and realized it wasn't there, and I had realized that I had... Let, had pulled my keys out of my pocket that was the last thing I I traced my, my steps in my head and I realized I would pulled my keys out of my pocket and that's the last thing I remember about that same pocket probably shouldn't have put it in that pocket but um, anyway so I thought it's a, it was after church it was Wednesday night and it was late it was like 10 o'clock or something and I thought uh, do I go back by the church and see where I parked and see if maybe that, that bill is sitting there I, I don't know but I imagine if it's a $100 bill and you and you were to do that, you'd probably go look for it, right? And it's a $100 bill. Uh, we actually did. Uh, I was driving by it anyway, so I drove by and there it sat right next to my car where I had pulled my keys out. <laughs> praise the Lord. Uh, if not, he could have used it for somebody else. And still, praise the Lord. But But the fact is, how often would we just see money go away and just, well, oh well, without some sort of, I'm going to look for it. But in the same way that that woman would look for her silver coin or that I would look for a $100 bill, I should be looking for that lost soul that's around me that, I don't, that I, I'm confident doesn't know Christ. Do I care about that one that's gone away? Maybe they used to be in church, or maybe they, maybe they never have been, but it's a person I work with or I know or a family member, and I, and I just have never even, never even sought them. The story is told of a man named Charles Peace. He was a notorious criminal in England. He was executed on February 25, 1879. Just before his, uh, his execution, an Anglican minister was walking with him to his execution, and he was reading to him from what's called the Consolations of Religion. Um, and it states this. It's a catechism. It says this. Those who die without Christ experience hell, which is the pain of forever dying without the release which death itself can bring. So in other words... What that means is, and this is is the truth, this is what the Bible says about about hell, is that not only is it real, it's physical fire, it's also physical torment. Uh, I think there will be remembrance. There will be no remembrance in heaven, I think, of pain and things like that, but in hell I think there very much is because that is a representative of hell, is a remembrance of of the opportunities that God gave you to to come to know Christ. Uh, There will be the separation from God for all eternity. There, there, there's 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 multiple aspects of, of the pain that happens in hell, but it is real, physical, right? But this man's saying it's one of those pains is the the process of dying for all eternity. So in other words, Most of us, certainly if you're a Christian, you're not afraid of being dead, right? Paul says, I would rather be dead because that means I'm in heaven immediately. And, I mean, all the pain that I deal with every day. I mean, I can't even imagine some of the pains by the time his life ended that Paul was dealing with, right? He had some physical pains. He was stoned to death and got up and walked back into town, right? It would be far better to be in heaven. It's not the being dead that we concern ourselves with. It's the process, right? So William William Tyndale was burned at the stake. Uh, There are many, many, many others who who were as well. Uh, uh, There's the story of a man who was um, in North Carolina uh, in the early 1700s, mid-1700s, who was Baptist uh, and not Anglican like the government was and the government found out that he was calling himself a Baptist and so they sentenced him to execution. And the way they accomplished this was they hung him till he was almost dead and then they took him down and they took his insides out with his family and everybody still watching and him still alive. I would say that that's not the way I want to die. (laughs) It's the process that I'm kind of concerned with. Now, I trust that the Lord will give me the grace to get through whatever he allows me to do. You know, Peter was, is, is told uh, historically that Peter was executed on a cross, upside down, hung on a cross. I can't even imagine. Um, but, but there's a lot of bad ways to die. It's the process of dying. So all eternity of, in the dying process is really uh, the way they describe hell, and I think it's accurate. So this, this criminal Charles piece, he stops the minister and he says this. You can look this up. He says, Sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it if need be on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. In other words, what he says is if what you're saying is true, that the Bible says that, that the hell is like that, then there's nothing that would come in my way between stopping me from telling someone else about that and saving them from that eternal hell. Do I truly believe what the Bible says about hell? And if so, do I care that the people around me are going to experience that if they don't hear about Christ? You know, to be honest, you run into people that none of us in this room will ever run into for whatever reason, at work, at at your family, whatever it is, Pastor, you know, some, some people kind of have the mindset that it's kind of the pastor's job to do the, to do the gospel witnessing, but it's not. Um, and there are people that you will run into that he never will, ever. And, and so you do have a responsibility for those people. God has given each one of us a responsibility for the people that we come across. And, and then lastly, I just want to, real briefly, we'll, get, we'll, be, we'll be done here, is this parable of the lost son. We are often referred to it as the parable uh, uh, the, of the prodigal son, right? We, the story of the prodigal son. Uh, but I would say this: someone said this many years ago, and I agree with the statement that um, the first two were about uh, not about the sheep, or it was about the shepherd. It was not about the, the coin; it was about the woman. Uh, and in this case, it was this. The story is really not primarily about the son; it's about the father looking for the son. Jesus Christ is trying to encourage us to be like the father and look for the son. And in this case, this son wrongs him. He comes to him and says, I want my inheritance early. Well, he's not even dead yet. And, and yet, the father appeases him. In fact, there's some belief by many historically that in this time, if, if, if a son were to come and ask his father for this inheritance, it was worthy of execution. And, and yet, the son comes to the father, asks for this money. Father appeases him by giving him some form of money, whether it's stuff and he sells it or, or what, but eventually it would, have, it would seem, in our minds, we, we, we assume that he walks away with some sort of a bag of coins or something like that. Some money, right? He goes off into a far country and Jesus Christ says he wastes it on riotous living. Regardless of how he spent the money, the end result is it's gone. And now he's in a position where he still needs to eat. And so he comes to a point where he decides he's going to go work for a man feeding swine. Keep in mind who Jesus is talking to. In this particular passage, Jesus is telling this parable to the Pharisees, the scribes, the ones who were called lawyers. They knew the law well. And they would know that this is not okay. So every Jewish person would know. You, you would not spend time around swine. But, it, <coughs> pardon me, but in this case, these were lawyers. These people were very much... They were very prideful about the fact that they were not around this unlawful stuff. And yet, this young man finds himself feeding swine. Uh, Someone put it this way, and it's a fascinating way to look at it. The the swine need to eat food, right? So they need someone to serve them. He became a servant of pigs. That's a pretty low position in life. (laughs) Um... We we were in a church in North Carolina some time back, and um, the pastor mentioned. He said, "When you get into town, you'll know it because um, we have a lot of swine and turkeys in this town, and you can't miss them." (laughs) And uh, he was not joking. (laughs) Um, But one of the gentlemen that we um, that uh, was in the church there, they uh, he he runs a pig farm. He has a pig, turkey, and chicken farm. Uh, and, um, I mean, I think they were talking 12,000 pigs, I think, they were running. And um, uh, and he, I mean, I mean, they're just feeding them, feeding them, feeding them until they go off to the slaughterhouse, I guess. But, um, yeah, you can smell them. You, you, there's no doubt. Uh, they smell different, especially for someone like Jew who didn't live anywhere near swine, <laughs> That was a different smell for sure. This young man gets to the point where he's so desperate he would eat after them. So Jesus Christ is just trying to bring us to a point where he's saying, recognize that this is a bad position in life. He's found himself at the bottom. And now, in verse um, number 20, it says he arose, the young man arose and came to his father. But when he was yet, he's coming back, he's decided, you know, my father's servants live better than I do. Why don't I just go be a servant of His? He says in verse number 20, When He was yet a great way off, His father saw Him and had compassion, and ran and fell on His neck and kissed Him. And the son said unto Him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called Thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found." In other words, the father, we see, not only had compassion on him, he didn't care what he'd been into. He didn't. Most of us would have rightly asked, why don't you have a robe? I give you a robe. Where's your ring? Where's the shoes that were on your feet? You have nothing. You are, you are literally without anything. <laughs> and here you come back, what happened? And the father didn't even ask a question. In fact, when the son begins to show his repentance, he shows... Uh, to the father that he's coming back humbly the father just brushes it off and says it doesn't even matter i just don't even care you're my son and i'm going to do everything i can to protect you the father had compassion on him as if he truly cared about what happened to his son and and then not only that he saw him a great way off that that tells me that the father was looking for him regularly this was not a, oh, he showed up, oh, there's my son. He wasn't surprised by it. He saw him a great way off, and he ran to him. <laughs> I mean, how often would it be described to me that I treated an, un, an unsafe person that way? That I saw their need, and I, and I ran to them and did everything I could to protect them from eternity in hell. It's very, very rare that I would say that, Right? And, and yet, Jesus Christ had compassion on these people as sheep having no shepherd. The story is told of a young man named Christopher Searcy. He was 15 years old. In May of 1998, he was playing basketball with his friends in Chicago. And uh, while he was playing basketball, he was unaware that there were two rival gangs on either side of the basketball court, and they began shooting, and Christopher took a, a bullet to his aorta. Uh, His friends carried him to what was once the Ravenswood Hospital that got him within 40 feet of the entrance. And one of his friends went inside the hospital into the emergency room and asked for help. The hospital staff refused to help him because they said uh, it is against hospital policy to help someone that's not on hospital property. And he was on the sidewalk outside the hospital. Uh, one of the friends went and found a police officer, who eventually found a wheelchair, wheeled him into the emergency room, and uh, Christopher went into the operating room and died about an hour later on the operating table. And and we would say that's despicable that a hospital would ever do that. That's their job. That's why they exist, right? If you wanted to get a job in a hospital, why? Because you want to help people. You have knowledge to help and the tools to help someone to save their life. And you did not do that, you failed your job, and yet as a, as a as a church, we are a hospital. A church is not built. I would say this a church is not built for the unsaved it 's built for the saved. This is where we are encouraged we, we encourage each other. this is where we, we we build each other up and 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 we go and share the gospel and bring them in here right it 's a hospital that 's what this is. Someone said this uh, A church is the only uh, or only medical facility, I guess you might say, that, um, that takes its worst patients and turns them into doctors. That's a good way to put it, I guess. They also say that it's, also, it's one of the only hospitals that shoots its wounded. <laughs> and often we do that as well. But the fact is, as a hospital, it is our job to get them in here. And You say, well, if they come in here, I would, heal. I would heal them. I would help them in any way that I could if they would just get in here. And the fact is, some of them just can't get in here. They can't bring themselves to get in here because they have something in their way. They have they have some offense that's happened to them by a church member someplace or a church or a pastor or something that's blocking their way or there's something that's been built up over the years that makes them think that the truth is not found in the church. For whatever reason, they will never get themselves into a church and so we cannot help them. And so sometimes we have to act like the ambulance that goes and helps them out there. Right? we can't just wait for them to show up because they may not be able to or they may just may not choose to but the fact is as Christians it's our job to go out and get them to go out and share the gospel with them so that they can because they'll never hear it in here so how are we doing as Christians in helping people to be healed from the one thing that will actually affect all of eternity for them one last story and we're done there's a story told of uh, by a missionary in, in Africa of a woman who got saved, and uh, she was blind and could neither read nor write. And the missionary said that one day she came to him and she said, "Can I get a copy of the Bible in French? And then, if you could find John 3:16, mark that page and then highlight that verse for me." He did it. He handed it to her. He said he was curious what she would do, so he followed her. And one day, she went and sat on the porch of the schoolhouse where the boys were getting ready to get out of school. And when, when they would come out the door, he would grab, she would grab one by the arm. And she'd say, do you know how to read French? When he would say, yes, she would say, can you read this passage? When he would read John 3.16, she would say, can you, do you know what this means? And she would share the gospel with him. The missionary said that he knew of 24 of the young men that she led to the Lord that became pastors, and she could neither read nor write. Now, it's not your job to create pastors. It's not your job to save souls. It's merely yours' job and my job to share the gospel. That's all we can do. And I don't know how many young men that she shared the gospel with that did not get saved. I don't know. But we know she was faithful in what she could do. And I would say this. Some people say, well, I'm not good at street preaching. And that's fine. I understand that. Oh, I'm not good at uh, door knocking, whatever it is. I what we have all these ideas of how we do it. It's not about what you do. It's about finding something that works for you. But do something. That's the key. Is that, is that none of us are probably going to be good at it, all, the, all the ways of sharing the gospel with someone. But find something that works and do that. And I guarantee you, God will use it. You know, in a way that you couldn't possibly have done it. Far beyond your own abilities. That's what he does. right? So don't... Don't make the excuse that I, I well I haven't figured out a way. If a pastor would ever come to me, I, you know, he'd maybe let me know of something and then I can do it. Go to him. Say how can I how can I improve in this area? Is there something I can do here that's the, to fill a hole to to help share the gospel with people around me? That's what pastors are looking for. Is they're not they're not looking to go find every single person and fit them into a hole. So I would challenge you with this. It's not about Like I said, it's not about street preaching. It's not about door knocking. It's even less about those things as it is about... What about the people you already know? Can you picture a face, a a name, someone who you know, but you you don't believe is saved? Have you shared the gospel with that person in some way? Just shared your witness? Just just said, hey, this is what the Lord did for me. This is what I came to understand. Do you remember the day you were saved? Someone shared the gospel with you, whoever that was. For me, it was my dad and I was four years old. But, but that's not the same with everybody. My dad was 29 years old when he got saved. Someone took the time, pursued him, and shared the gospel with him. Remember that day that someone shared the gospel with you and you came to a realization of who God was and who you were, and you accepted Christ as your Savior? Wouldn't you want to be that one for someone else? <laughs> that's, what we, that's what he wants. That's what he's trying to get us to accomplish, is to be that someone for someone else. Heads about eyes closed with me if this morning as we close. I just want to remind us that uh, Christ has called each one of us to share the gospel with those around us. I, I would ask two things this morning. First, I didn't go into depth this morning about the gospel, sharing that specifically. But if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior... If you've not come to a place where you've accepted Him as your Savior, you've recognized your own position before God, His position, and realized that there's only one way to heaven. It's not through good works. It's not through a church. It's not through a person. It's through Jesus Christ and Him alone. It's through accepting His already completed work. 1 John tells us that we can know that we have eternal life. We can know for sure. If you don't know for sure where you would go if you died today, I would beg you, please don't leave here today without knowing that. I guarantee you there's a handful of people who would love nothing more than to share that with you more fully. I pray that you would not just push that off if that is the case. You have no idea when your your last breath will be or if you'll have your next breath. I know it seems like we have long time, but we, we don't know that. Nothing's guaranteed. So I challenge you today, if you don't know Christ, please do not leave here without knowing that. And then on the second side, if you do know Christ, like I said, think back to that day when someone shared the gospel with you. Maybe that was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe that was a, a parent. Maybe that was a sibling. Maybe that was a spouse. Maybe that was someone knocking on your door. Maybe that was someone handing you a tract and uh, in a bus stop or a, or, or a mall or a, a grocery store or something like that wherever it is think back to that day when you come to the realization that you needed Christ as your savior and you made that decision based on someone else's witness how can you be that for someone else and you say oh I'm tired of getting rejected I get rejected a lot yeah I hear you, and I understand that but yet Christ was rejected far more than any of us could be and they are rejecting him not you they don't know you But they they don't want him, so let let him take that burden. And I understand as humans we struggle with that, but but I would just say don't fail to share that message with those around you in some way. If you don't, if you say I don't know how, I don't know the Romans wrote, I don't know whatever it is that that um, there's lots of different ways to share the gospel. I don't know one of those. Well, that's fine. That's that's something maybe you can work on eventually. But you don't even need that. You just need to share what He did for you. I challenge you today, don't let a day's, weeks, months go by without sharing the gospel with somebody, at least handing them a tract and saying, hey, look, this is how you can know for sure you'll be in heaven one day. Or something to that effect. In your own words. Give them an opportunity to know Christ. If they reject it, that's on them. God called us, like Ezekiel, to be the watchman. Our job is to share it with them let them make their decision. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all you do for us. We thank you for your, your compassion on those around you. Lord, while you were physically on this earth, but your, Lord, you show that same compassion to every single one of us. Lord, you could have come and raptured us the day before I got saved, but you didn't. You gave me an opportunity to be saved. Lord, I pray that you would help me to be the witness that I ought to be sharing the gospel with those that I know, those that I see, those that I meet. In some way, witnessing that they might know Christ as their Savior. That they might stand in eternity one day and say, I had an opportunity to accept Christ as my Savior. I made a decision for Christ because someone was willing to share it with me. Lord, give us boldness. Help us not to fear rejection and all that. Lord, help us to be looking for those who don't know you. I pray that you'd be honored and glorified, Lord, our service, I thank you for all you've done here. Thank you for bringing all of these here today. And uh, we pray for Pastor as he's uh, traveling. And I pray that you would just give him and his family a blessed time and uh, refresh them as uh, they, when they come back, that we're ready to go back to work again. And, and Lord, we pray that you would bless them in their ministry. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. And you are dismissed.